Well, children, I believe, may be dismissed for Children's Church today. The, the text is Hebrews uh, 13 and verse 4. We will be looking in Genesis chapter 1 before we get to there, but uh, you might want to mark that place. I am going to be addressing the subject today of Christian sexual ethics. And um, I'm going to do my very best to treat what could be an R-rated subject uh, in a PG uh, sort of way. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best. All right, and uh, but uh, that is the topic for today, so you know and are forewarned. The volume of sexual material and explicitness of sexual material has tremendously increased in recent times in all the various forms of media you no doubt are aware of that. I don't need a lot of statistics to back, back that up. You have experienced it. Our society has become permeated by sexual language and sexual images and therefore sexual thoughts and thinking. It used to be, there was a time, you had to work pretty hard to come in contact with explicit sexual material. Today, you have to work hard to avoid being bombarded by sexual material. It's on the magazine racks at the grocery checkout stand. It's on the billboards as you drive down the freeway on your daily commute. It's in most TV shows and movies. It's on the sidebar of your web browser on your computer. It's in the headlines on the 6 o'clock news many days. Millions of sexually explicit images are only a click or two away on the internet that comes into the homes of all you people out there who are Christians. What a change that is. Psychologists and social scientists have shown time and again that young people exposed to sexually explicit material are highly influenced by it and are far more likely to engage in sexual activity because of it. And most young people today have access to this kind of material. Sexual promiscuity is so rampant in our society and so prevalent in the media that many young people today take sex casual sexual activity for granted. They just assume that's their right and their privilege to be engaged in those kinds of behaviors. They may have never heard anyone say to them that they ought to exercise self-denial with regard to sexual activity. Or never heard anyone teach them that they ought to abstain from sex until they get married. In fact, virginity is ridiculed and stigmatized in our culture of youth. This lack of restraint has led to a great deal of pain 
and tragedy, unwanted pregnancies, abortions, sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, the inability to enter into and maintain enduring and successful marriage and family relationships, broken marriages, adultery, divorce, fractured families, and a great deal of emotional trauma. I want to teach you today what God has to say in his word about how people, particularly those who consider themselves to be Christians, are to behave sexually. And I'm here to tell you that God has a better idea. Now, how does this relate to our series of sermons from the pastoral letters? Well, the uh, pastoral letters tell us that the, the church is to be the household of God, the family of God. And we've been looking at uh, the Christian family, what God's will is for the family, particularly husbands and wives. Sexual activity is the unique privilege of husbands and wives, according to God's word. So obedience to God in this area is absolutely essential for the survival of and the well-being of families. And therefore, for the survival and the well-being of the Christian extended family, which is the church. And so that, therefore, the relevance. Now, I want to, as I said, do my best to give you a PG-rated sermon on an R-rated subject. So I'm going to be using uh, some terminology here. Uh, so I'm not always referring to having sex or sexual intercourse. I'm going to call that the act of marriage. So when I speak of the act of marriage, you will know what I'm speaking of. Uh, thanks for that terminology to Tim LaHaye, who's written a book by that terminology. There's a lot of false myths and lies in the world having to do with Christians and the act of marriage. Uh, and the attitudes of Christians toward the act of marriage are often portrayed in very negative ways by people in the world, by, by Hollywood particularly. So let's set this, the record straight in this regard by uh, sharing several biblical truths here. The first is this, that God is the one who invented the act of marriage. God himself. Now we find this in Genesis chapter 1. We've already looked at this before, but uh, let's take just a quick look in Genesis chapter 1. The, book, uh, the, the chapter of beginnings here, the first three chapters there, the book of beginnings. Verse 127, God created Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. How did he create him? Male and female, God created them. When he says that, it means he created them with all of the physical equipment and with all of the psychological and emotional dynamics that go into participating in the act of marriage. God is the one who created us in that way. Now look at verse 28. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Not only did he create us with the equipment and the uh, psychological propensity towards that, he gave us the command to do so. Furthermore, he blessed humankind in that activity. God, it says, blessed them in this. He brings Adam and Eve together and unites them in the first wedding ceremony in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And he gave Adam and Eve children as a result of their sexual union. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where Eve exclaims after bearing the first child, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Amen. Human sexuality, the act of marriage, and childbearing, the natural result of engaging in the act of marriage, were all part of God's good creation from the beginning. God invented the act of marriage, and in the beginning, before sin came into the world, it was all good, and there was nothing bad about it. God created the act of marriage, and he created it good. Second truth, the Bible tells us that God designed the act of marriage exclusively for marriage. Now, before I can go on with this point, it becomes necessary due to developments in our, our society recently to define what we mean by marriage. There was a time when everybody understood what we meant, but we can no longer assume that anymore. So, let's talk about a definition of marriage. Marriage according to God and the Word of God. Marriage is when one man and one woman become united together into a new permanent family unit. One man, one woman, united together into a new family unit. Second, this takes place when the couple makes a solemn covenant, they take vows, as we say, they make promises to one another in the presence of God and human witnesses who ratify that covenant. Now, you might not have got, invited God to your wedding ceremony, but believe me, he was there. He sees everything and he hears everything. God is present in weddings. Third, in these vows, husband and wife promise to love and be loyal to each other as long as both remain alive. That is the essence of marriage according to the Bible. Now with marriage comes the special privilege of engaging in the act of marriage. And the point that I want to be want to be talking about now is that God designed the act of marriage exclusively for marriage. So now at this point, let me direct your attention to our text today, which is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Now the book of Hebrews is a great, wonderful theological treatise. We've, we preach through the book of Hebrews, but he concludes with uh, several miscellaneous Christian exhortations. One of them is this one about marriage in verse 4 of chapter 13. And I'm going to be reading today from the New American Standard Bible, and so a little different from the New International that you have in the pew. But the author writes here, Marriage is to be held in honor 
among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. All right, he starts off with the word marriage. Marriage, that is the biblical kind of marriage. He says it's to be held in honor. How do we hold marriage in honor? Well, you think about it and speak about it as something good and something important. And you uh, use it in positive ways as you're talking about, not as the butt of some kind of a joke. You teach your children to look forward to it and prepare them for it. You, you hold marriage in honor by protecting it, guarding it, encouraging it as an institution. And unfortunately today, the laws of our land no longer hold marriage in very high esteem. Uh, they kind of undermine and work against marriage. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have laws which are sometimes called uh, marriage penalty laws. And a lot of people, a lot of times couples do not choose to get married because if they get married, they will lose economic benefits. And so it works against them. They, they just choose to do what is practically possible, which is not to get married, but just live together. These laws work against it. Divorce has been made easy. Adultery is no big deal. And so our laws don't honor marriage. They don't support marriage, but we ought to. We ought to work hard to establish solid marriages. We ought to work hard to save troubled marriages. Marriage needs to be held in honor among all, he says, and especially to those of us who are in the household of faith. Now, the next phrase is this, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Speaking of the marriage bed, he's referring to the act of marriage. What happens there in the privacy of that marriage relationship? That language here is the language of holiness. Marriage is to remain pure, undefiled. Marriage is a sacred institution made so by God's presence at the wedding. The act of marriage is reserved for husband and wife only to introduce another party into that privilege defiles it. It desecrates it. It introduces impurity into that relationship. So this act of marriage that we're talking about is not something that is a private right that you can engage with at your, your leisure or with anybody you want to, not according to God. It's not a recreational activity like going to a football game or snowboarding or something like that. By God's design, it's the special privilege of those who are married. God designed the act of marriage exclusively for marriage. So, the third truth is this. God created the act of marriage to be a source of joy and blessing between husband and wife. There's a lot of people that make Christians out into prudes and people that uh, think that sex is all wrong. And there's, uh, it's evil even to think about pleasure. But friends, if you are not convinced that God 
intended marriage to be a source of joy and blessing, then you haven't read the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. Now, for a long time, Christians were kind of embarrassed about that book because it was so explicit. But, uh, and so they would allegorize it and said, well, it's really talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. But frankly, when you read it, it's just a book of love poetry between King Solomon and his bride. And if you read it carefully, there's some parts in there that will uh, kind of make you... Uh, maybe it's not something you'd want to bring up at the table, I don't think. And if you could read it in the original language of Hebrew, you'd be turning several shades of pink. It's pretty explicit. And the whole point is that God intends this part of the marriage relationship to be a source of joy and a blessing for husbands and wives. In fact... The act of marriage gets the very best that it can be within a healthy, long-lasting marriage relationship. You know. So if you're looking for the best in the act of marriage, it happens within a long-lasting marriage. First of all, there's lots of time to practice. Second, there's no pressure or manipulation. It's a secure relationship. And there's virtually no limits. It's only the feelings and conscience of the husbands that dictate what has, happens and doesn't. God created the act of marriage to be a source of joy and blessing between husband and wife. It can really only reach its highest level of joy and blessing within a permanent, healthy marriage relationship. Now, I'm starting with all of this because, you know, it's important. There, there's a lot of things we could say that you should not be doing. And there's a lot of things we can say that are wrong. But the, the, the whole big picture says God has, has created this part, this act of marriage, to be a source of joy and blessing uh, within marriage. He invented it. He invented it good. He invented it to be the exclusive pri privilege of the husband and the wife, and I think that's important for us to say. Now, that's the act of marriage within marriage. So let's take a few minutes and talk about what the Bible has to say about the act of marriage outside of marriage. Let's go back to our text here. Outside of marriage, God tells us that the act of marriage is sin. It is wrong, he says, and it is wrong because it's hurtful. And damaging to ourselves and to others. Hebrews chapter 13 uh, and the second part. Well, let's read the whole verse. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Everything the Bible has to say about sexual ethics is really condensed down into this one little verse. <laughs> this is really all you need to know. Who's a fornicator? A fornicator are those, uh, it's, it's a kind of an old English word, but it represents a Greek word that means those who engage in the act of marriage outside of marriage. We call it sometimes premarital sex or extramarital sex or adultery, whatever. It's just a general word that talks about sexual immorality. That is sex that is not within marriage. Adulterers, those who break their wedding vow 
to love and to be loyal to their partner by engaging in the act of marriage with someone who is not their husband or wife. It's probably more well known. Now, the verse says this. Those who engage in such things, will God will judge. Now, you know, sometimes people come to me afterwards or I hear through a third party, you know, oh, so-and-so thinks you're really judgmental, Pastor Jerry. And that, uh, you know, you're just really legalistic and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And, and I, I just want to point out here that uh, it's not me who's judging anybody here today. Who's going to do the judge according to the judging according to this verse? God, it says, will judge. I do not judge you. I'm just passing on to you what God's word says here. It says, God will judge those who gave who engage in these kinds of behavior. This is particularly important to say to our society today, which is so libertarian, so open-handed with regard to this matter. It's just like anything goes and there's no limits. It doesn't matter. Well, that's not what God's word says. It says he will, call, he will hold you accountable for this kind of behavior. Now, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the, the, the Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed. But then after sin came into the world, it says they, they went off and tried to cover themselves up because they felt shame and sin started to mess up their sexual identity and their sexual relationship. Since that time, it's been all downhill. And human beings have, have invented all manner of ways to mess up what God in the beginning created to be good in so many different ways. Do I need to list all the different ways, brothers and sisters? It really all comes down to one thing. If it's not within marriage, the kind of marriage that God defines as marriage, then it's wrong. That's all really needs to be said. But let me be a little bit more specific. It includes engaging in the act of marriage before you are married. We call that premarital sex. Or any time when you're not married, irrespective of gender. Young people. Well, maybe not just young people. Everybody here. Here's what we see in TV and movies, right? Boy meets girl. They, get it, they feel this attraction going for one another. They get to know each other a little bit. They go on a date. They have a first kiss. And the next thing, you know, they jump into bed. You see this so often that there's a lot of young people, I think, they just think that that's the way you're, the way you're supposed to conduct your relationships. That's what's supposed to happen. But that's not what God's Word says should happen. Boy meets girl. You might feel that attraction. You get to know each other. Maybe you have your first kiss, hold hands, whatever. And then you need to draw some limits about your physical engagement and involvement. You need to continue to get to know each other and get to know each other really well over a long period of time until God says it's time for you to get married. And then, once you're married, engage in the physical part. So let me encourage you today, commit yourself to chastity, sexual purity, until marriage. I know that's not real popular. It's not going to make you win any popularity context. But it's God's will for you. 
You need to set limits with regard to physical involvement because very powerful desires are at work here. It's kind of like a big vortex in the ocean. If you get too close, it's going to suck you in. And so you've got to stay as far away as you can. Engaging the act of marriage before you're married or outside of marriage. And of course, there's adultery we've talked about. There's pornography. These things, viewing images, sexual images of someone who is not your wife. Very common, very powerful temptations. Jesus said, if you lust after somebody in your mind, uh, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. It'll, it'll kill your marriage. It'll damage you. Prostitution, polygamy, a kind of legalized adultery, incest, homosexual activity, and the list goes on. I hesitate to go any farther down the list uh, just for propriety's sake. Outside of marriage, the kind of marriage God considers marriage, God plainly tells us that engaging in the act of marriage is sin. It will incur his wrath and judgment one day. So, here's the conclusion. Main thoughts today. God ordained the act of marriage as a privilege for husbands and wives. Second, within marriage, God intends for the act of marriage to be a source of joy and blessing. And third, outside of marriage, engaging in the act of marriage is sin. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's kind of repressive, you know, that's kind of strict. Who could ever do anything like that? God's ways, my brothers and sisters, are not only right, but they are good. God doesn't give you his laws just to deprive you of fun things. He gives you his laws for your well-being and your good. He wants the very best for you. And his way is always best, though we continually think we know better than God what is good for us. All the sexual liberation which my generation brought in has not led to freedom and happiness, but to bondage and wanton destruction of hearts and lives. And many of you have found that out firsthand. So my question is, why not give God's way a try? I think you'll be blessed. And here's the best part of all. You know, the Bible tells us all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And this is particularly true in this area of sexual activity. This is such a powerful area of temptation and the area that the devil knows if he can get his finger in that area, he can mess you up very, very badly. All have sinned. All fall short. And, but just as for all other manner of sin, in this particular area, there's also forgiveness available if we're willing to come to God with repentance and faith. So if we've been going the wrong way in this re regard, and we learn what God's will is for our lives, you know, maybe we're going down the road of life and we think we're going the right way, we wake up and say, oh, maybe this isn't the right way. Maybe God was right after all. 
And we're sorry for our sins and we turn back and go God's way and put our faith in the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We can be forgiven. It's never too late to stop the direction you're going and start going in the way that God wants you to go. It's never too late as long as you have breath. You cannot change the past, but if you're willing to repent of your sin, you can be forgiven in the present and you can start walking down the road of life the way God wants you to do. You can start living the holy life that God called you to today. Let me just close with this story uh, in John chapter 8 of the woman who was caught in adultery. Many of you know this story. How the Pharisees, Jesus' adversaries, caught this lady in the act of adultery and she hauled her in public to Jesus while he was teaching in the temple courts and threw her down before him and, and said, you know, the law says we ought to stone this lady. What do you think? You know, they're trying to publicly disgrace him. You wonder where the, you wonder where the guy was, right? Where was the guy that she was engaged with? He was probably one of their pals or cronies, you know. But they just haul the woman in and throw him down there. And the Bible says that Jesus knelt down and started to write something in the sand. It doesn't tell us what he wrote, but maybe it was Reuben. Back in July, Las Vegas. Remember that? We don't know what what he wrote. But they pressed him on it. And he says, what do you think? And so Jesus stands up and says, all right, the one of you who has no sin, you be the first to throw the stone. And the Bible says that they all began to slink away one by one from oldest to youngest. And when he was there, left with that woman, he looks down and says, where are your accuser? Does nobody condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says to her, neither do I. Not now, not today. Go and sin no more. Now, here's the, here's the good news. Today is still that day. It's not the day of judgment yet. It might be this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or a year from now. But today is still the day of mercy. And if you're willing to come to the Lord, look up into his face and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? He will. He'll wipe it clean and he'll say to you, get up and go and sin no more. And you can. You can live the life that God wants you to live. Some of you may need to do that today. And you're welcome to come and get your life right with the Lord. Maybe you want to come and kneel down. Or maybe you just want to take care of that in the privacy of your heart. Or go home and kneel down by your bed and get it right with God. However it is, God invites you. Jesus invites you to uh, bring your life into conformity with His will for you. Let's pray. Father, we all fall short in many ways, certainly, you know, my own shortcomings in this regard. But today is still the day of salvation. Today is still the day where your mercy can prevail. 
We can't just sweep under the rug the things that we do wrong. And we cannot pretend that what is immoral is moral. It's not. You make very plain that you call us to purity and to holiness. Help us, Father, today to say yes to your spirit. To repent of our sins. To trust Jesus. To gain the forgiveness he offers us. And begin walking in your way, I pray. Bring health and strength to our families and our marriages, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.